Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. What do trolls sound like? I don't know. I don't know. Like, sure. The air horn. No. I don't think that trolls will make anything appealing. Okay, okay. Hey there, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season, we're discussing the ladies of power couples. On today's episode, we will finish talking about Florence Noel Bassett, an architect, interior designer, and furniture designer who changed the world of corporate furniture and interiors. I'm Lizzie Rahr, celebrating National Library Week in San Francisco, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Jessica and Nurjiti. I'm Nurjiti Rivas, thankful for all the workers at the Houston Public Library in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jessica Rogers. Can't really get to my library, but I'm digging my Libby app, which connects me to my library to download ebooks and audiobooks based out of Washington, D.C. Ooh. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love, love Libby. Me too. Best thing. It's time for a disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We're just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, Please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning. All right. So last week, I told you the beginning of the story of Florence Knoll, or Shoot, as most people called her. But there was too much to say, and she did so much that we had to break it up into two episodes. Yeah. So if you haven't heard episode 48 yet, pause this episode and go listen to that one right now so you can learn about Shoot's formative years and everything that influenced what we are going to talk about today. We should still probably do a quick recap. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Florence was born in Saginaw, Michigan in 1917. She was orphaned at age 12 and went to boarding school at Cranbrook. While she was there, she was sort of adopted by the Saarinens and became part of their family, but they were also mentors to her and her design education. From there, she studied at Columbia School of Architecture, the AA in London, interned with Marcel Brewer and Walter Gropius, and then finished her degree at the Armour Institute with Mies. 
After graduating, Florence moved to New York and started working for various offices there. During this time, she met Hans Knoll, owner of a furniture company. She started working with him on interior projects and eventually went to work for the company. She and Hans got married in 1946, and she became a full partner in Knoll Associates. Most people today probably hear the name Knoll and think of their furniture designs. Florence and Hans made a point of collaborating with very famous designers to raise the profile of their company. In addition to these designer furniture pieces, Florence designed most of the other furniture in the Knoll collection. Her designs would make up almost half the catalog. Can't wait to hear what she does next. Mm-hmm. Okay, listeners, before we start, we're playing bingo again this week. Yes. <laughs> okay. I always love me some bingo. Yeah, let's get it. It was so much fun. I'm glad that we're playing again. <laughs> okay. If you want to play along, head to our social media to get one of the two bingo boards we've created for this episode. Jessica and Nergity have each created a board and you can choose to play along with one of them. They'll be playing live during our recording. You can only mark off a name on the board if I, Lizzie, say the person's name in the story. Nergity won the last episode, so we'll see who wins this week. Are you ready, ladies? So ready. And I hope I get to beat you, Nergity. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I, I'm coming to redeem myself. I'm going to do it. Do it. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. We're going to start talking about Knoll Textiles. It was established in 1947 and Florence hired many talented women from the U.S. and Europe who brought new weaving techniques with them. Esther Harazzi, Annie Albers, Suzanne Huguenin, Marianne Strengel, Isla Voiter are only a few of the various women who made their mark at Knoll. Textiles became central to Knoll's marketing. Do you get a few names, ladies? Hell yeah, I got four. I got five. I like Noel propelling these talented ladies. Okay, inclusivity. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to go back in time a little bit. For Christmas in 1935, when Florence was still in high school, Loya Saarinen made an evening dress for her. So the card that she gave her had a drawing of the dress design, like I said, but it used swatches of the fabric that she was planning to use. And this card was called a paste-up at the time. It was common in clothing and set design, but not in architectural and interior design. So when Florence was at Knoll, she would make her own paste-ups to emulate to clients what the feel of the design of a space would be. She said, It was extraordinary how small swatches of fabric and wood could convey a feeling of the space. I always felt the need to employ this system that eventually was used by design offices as a standard. Florence is the reason that we have textile samples on those little cards when you get them from various vendors. Okay, sample and material boards are so normal today. It's an industry standard. How do you even explain a design to a client without them? To know that she started this is totally amazing. Shut up. Like, what were they doing before? I, I just... Probably, I <laughs> yeah, like probably relying on renderings, but it's not the same. It doesn't and tell it, a whole story of a space. And we're not talking about renderings like we see today. Like the, the renderings right. yeah. are like watercolor. They were drawings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, -uh. I don't know. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, exactly. So 
having these paste ups or material boards of the various textiles would help clients understand the balance of the minimalist designs that they were doing. Because I think they were worried like, oh, they think it was too stark. Mm. But she was using these textiles to warm it up and kind of make it feel not so cold. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was that was the way that she was conveying it. Interesting. Okay. I mean, yeah, it makes total sense. Of course it does. I mean, it's hard to imagine a time where this didn't exist. It's like a time without Google, even though we lived it, you know, (laughs) we existed in a time that there wasn't Google. But now it's like, what? How do you even survive without the Internet? So (laughs) it's just not the same. Like, how do you even explain a design without samples and material boards? Mm -hmm. If you don't get to see the real materials, it's just not the same. Renderings are great. But they're not reality. And when you put materials next to one another or against a light, it just makes a huge difference. Yeah, such a huge difference. And, you know, even through those renderings, there's a lot of textures and finishes that can't easily be captured. So this is mind blowing, like game changer to the whole other level. Right. When I read that, she is the reason that all of the that we do that today. And it's just so normal. I was mm-hmm. floored. Like, yes, yeah. I was just I was like, wait, what? She might as well have created oh. light or the light bulb. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> that evolutionary. Well, another note on marketing that I just kind of found fun, because, you know, if you recall, Florence was in charge of textiles, marketing, furniture design, and the Knoll planning unit, which we'll talk about. You know, she was doing everything, right? Mm -hmm. But Florence came up with the idea to write Knoll on the top of their delivery trucks because then people in taller buildings around the city would see their name on top of the truck when they were making deliveries. (laughs) Can this lady get any more clever? (laughs) Right? I was like, that's just genius. (laughs) That's just smart right there. (laughs) Right there. (sighs) Okay. Well, let's talk about the big one, the Knoll planning unit, which I mentioned. This was within the interior design department, but it was sort of the main hub of the interiors section of Knoll. They were in charge of company showrooms and design projects that the company took on. There were never more than six to eight designers and Florence was at the helm. The planning unit was the heart of Knoll and really was the driving force behind the company's success and aesthetic. It brought together the furniture and textiles of the company's other departments and put it together with architecture and spatial planning. And they were a comprehensive design service. I didn't know that Knoll had a planning unit. And when did she find the time to do and be at the helm of everything? That I I, that I do not know. Uh, I mean, it's the same with like, all of our ladies, am I right? Uh, totally. Also, let's briefly talk about the importance of showrooms. Mm. I don't know about you, but for me, a showroom can totally make the difference when deciding if I will add a product to my project or not. And they're such a source of inspiration. So her being at the forefront of this too, she really was a master of the Knoll brand. Exactly. From a marketing standpoint, I can see how this would be such a smart selling strategy. Someone can see the setup of the space and just want to buy the whole setup, you know? So smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, but let's go back to the beginning of the planning unit and how it started. The first iteration was very different than what it became later on. 
In 1944, Hans asked a group of designers to submit furniture designs that were suitable for mass production. We've talked about this on previous episodes, right? This is like right at the end of World War II. Everyone knows that we're going to need to mass produce lots of things, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea was to find partnerships with manufacturers who had ramped up during the war. And then once it was over, they wouldn't have anything to produce anymore, right? So Hans asked Serge Chermayoff. Charles Eames, Antonin and Noemi Raymond, Joe Johansson, Louis Kahn, Oscar Stonorov, Ralph Rapson, and Aero Saarinen to submit designs. Okay, let me just double check that I didn't get bingo. Man, I would have. I thought that someone would have gotten bingo there for sure. Yeah. But I see that you you didn't put all the names on purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm ready. Jessica. Yep, I'm good. Got it. Okay. So Hans knew that calling on famous names would help with business, right? And there are a few entries that seemed promising, such as Louis Kahn's parasol house type, which was a plywood modular house unit that could be made in aircraft industry manufacturers. And Ralph Rapson designed a collection of aluminum outdoor furniture and accessories that could also be made by aircraft industry manufacturers. Unfortunately, none of these designs came to fruition, but the planning unit had been born. Once Florence took control of it, they moved to working on interiors projects. Oh, the original idea sounds so good. And those projects sound really, really cool. Too bad nothing came of it. I know, right? I really love how Florence was considering these other industries, too. And, um, okay, driving force for the economy, trying to keep people employed and whatnot. I love it. Well, one of the first important projects done by the planning unit was the living room of Howard and Louise Myers. Florence said that Howard was, quote, the catalyst of modern architecture and design in the U.S., the Myers would throw big parties with important people and they could show off Florence's great work and people really seemed to like it. Guys, apparently even Frank Lloyd Wright complimented her design and we know how petty Frank can be. Mm. Mm. Hmm. Ha. Don't we ever. This feels like a She Builds podcast first. Frank <laughs> not being a total jerk. Right? <laughs> not to say a quack word, but... <laughs> Way to go, Frank. <laughs> Hashtag proud of you. <laughs> imagine imagine how blown out of the water he must have been by Florence to do that. I mean, I'm super blown out of the water, really. But yeah, I know. And I wonder, part of me is like, was it just because she didn't work for him first, you know, so he didn't mm. have any beef. Mm. But hmm. either way, he was picky. We know. So <laughs> That's two names, by the way. Oh, I only got one. Howard Meyer and Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, yeah. Good. Thank you. Oh, bingo. How the hell do you have bingo already? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm so mad. Check out, check out my names, though. Let's let's verify the bingo. OK. Ralph Rapson. OK. Louis Kahn. OK. Sir Chermanoyev. <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright. And I'll avoid her. I was missing literally one in like five places. Oh, actually, this is the only one that I was close. (laughs) Okay. 
Well, I actually, it makes sense because in my mind, you are the bingo champion, Nergidi. Like you. It's true. You She's are, very experienced at the bingo. Yeah, she is the bingo aficionado. So <laughs> I, it was, it would have been a hard feat if I could, like, how yes. dare I try to come against. <laughs> try to compete with her. Yeah. How dare I? <laughs> it was a great experience. I learned a lot. I, I will take this. <laughs> This uh, loss <laughs> as a learning opportunity to sharpen my bingo skills. All right, ladies, that was great. But let's finish talking about Florence. Life after bingo. <laughs> <laughs> well, another early project was designing the Rockefeller family offices at Rockefeller Center. Nelson Rockefeller talked about how great it was because of its, quote, Rare and effective blending of good taste, originality, and administrative ability. And the Rockefellers then commissioned the planning unit for two more projects, including Nelson's residence. The Rockefellers made it to the episode. They were the only ones missing <laughs> out of all the name dropping that Lizzie's okay. been doing today. For real. We might need to start a new bingo board just because, I mean, well, we already won bingo, but... Just we're not even halfway through the mm -hmm. episode. And I That's feel like true, there's going to yeah. be more names. I made it too easy for <laughs> you guys. <laughs> well, having clients like the Myers and the Rockefellers really helped promote Noel and in turn modernism. Florence would say, quote, when we made presentations to clients and they said, oh, that's far too modern for us. I could say, well, it certainly isn't too modern for the Rockefellers. And then they would change their minds. <laughs> okay, girlfriend, way to make a sale. That I sounds so you. snooty. <laughs> but she tried yeah, to get yeah. the job. She knew you how know? to work the client. That's important. It was a selling exactly. tactic. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> well, most of the early projects in the planning unit came through friends and connections. Florence knew it was a good idea to keep in touch with and make alliances with modern architects who were getting big projects in the corporate sector to give them lots of new incoming work. Many of her connections during her training years got them a lot of work. This also brought Noel status and media coverage. Shaking and baking. It pays off. That's right. <laughs> Shu's biggest contribution to Noel's marketing, however, were their showrooms. Like Nergidi mentioned before, showrooms are a great way to promote your brand. So the first one was opened in New York in 1948, and others followed in Chicago, San Francisco, and Dallas. These were overseen by the planning unit and became spaces for Florence to experiment and research. The showrooms received design awards and were featured in magazine articles. They were almost selling the aesthetic more than the furniture itself. And while much of their business was office furniture and design, the showrooms had more of a living room feel to them. Mm, it's so interesting. And this goes back to my earlier point. Having these like made spaces, it's such a great sales strategy. Right. Yeah. So Florence's designs combined the boldness and sleekness of the steel and glass aesthetic with a humanized application of color, texture and comfort. She said, we were striving to create a new design language consistent with our times, materials and processes, always keeping in mind that the most important part of the equation was the human being. So she favored work with an open space plan to private offices. You can see that just with her approach and how she explains her design concepts to the clients with her inclusion of these pace steps. Brilliant. 
Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, so I know we're talking a bunch about the style of these office interiors, the furniture, and the showrooms, which were amazing looking. I can't wait for you guys to see the show notes. But to give listeners an idea of what we're talking about, think Mad Men. Very much the Noel look in that show. Mm, I think I only saw like two episodes of that show, but I know what you mean. What? Yeah, yeah. I, I never finished the series, but I get it. Modern, maybe a little bit of mid-century modern. I like it. I love it. Yeah, exactly. So as we know, and I've actually talked about this past season, there were other companies such as Herman Miller, Artec, Casina, Vitra, and others that were creating modern furniture and competing with Knoll at the time. However, none of these companies were doing such a complete design by doing production and licensing of furniture and furnishings with interior design services under a single roof. And this is what appealed to designers and collaborators, comprehensive design service. And we can't forget her meat and potatoes type of design, too. That would appeal to the masses. Yeah, you know, only half of their catalog and probably what kept the lights on. No big deal. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, in 1955, Hans died unexpectedly in a car accident in Cuba. (gasps) That's awful. And it looked like they had really found their stride. Gosh, A lot of these ladies have the same story at the height of their partnership and the husband dies. Mm-hmm. I know. Well, Florence became president and oversaw all company operations at that point. Business grew steadily in the years after Hans's death, which quieted any skeptics. Mm. Young designers came to Knoll specifically to work with Shu. Do they not know who Florence was? Of course she could <laughs> handle it. But, you know, skeptics. And the part that That's the skeptics right. must have forgotten was the reputation that they had built up to this point. And, well, the young designers obviously didn't forget this. Haters are going to hate. It's just what they do. Good thing Florence shut that down. Mm-hmm. That's right. In fact, the planning unit's biggest projects happened in the years after Hans's death. The General Motors Company Technical Center in Warren, Michigan, designed by Aero Saarinen, They did the interiors and Arrow collaborated on the furniture. Then the Connecticut General Life Insurance Company in 1957 by SOM was an even larger commission. But on this project, Florence managed the entire interior package, spatial organization, furniture, fabric, color palette. Richard Schultz was a designer with the planning unit at that time, and he said, we were going along doing what we wanted to do, and we didn't know we were making history. Shu's attitude about product development was, we do what we want to do. She never looked around and saw what other people were doing. I like this. She didn't know she was making history. She was just doing what she knew was good work. Exactly. Just doing the work in front of you until someone else notices. Gordon Bunshaft was in charge of this project for SOM, and he said, Shu Knoll had developed quite an interior department, and she was hired to do the interiors at our recommendation. It was a very happy joint venture. Our design interests were more or less the same. International, modern. (laughs) Everyone has nothing but good things to say about Florence, naturally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. See, now you can have bingo. Okay, I have bingo now for those listening. It took a while, but (laughs) I was just, I was missing Gordon. Well, in 1958, Florence found love again and married Harry Hood Bassett, a Florida banker and became Florence Noel Bassett. She then started dividing her time between New York and Miami. 
Long live the newlyweds. A year later, she sold her interest in Knoll Associates and she stepped down as president in 1960. She stayed on as a consultant and as the design director, though. In 1963, she was asked by CBS's president to finish the interiors of the CBS building on 6th Avenue and 53rd Street in New York, designed by Aero Saarinen. This would be her final project with the planning unit. Hmm. This sounds major. Yeah, it sounds like a huge undertaking. Yeah. So the project has mixed reviews, though. I read things that said she was at her sharpest with this design, and yet something else I read said that after the fact, she didn't feel totally happy with it because she felt she'd been brought into the project at the end and wasn't able to do a full and complete job. Actually, Ada Louise Huxtable was quite critical of the design. Oh, we know how critical our girl Ada can be. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I got bingo for the second time because I was missing Ada. Um, And for those playing (laughs) along, if you haven't reached bingo by now, then you're playing wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't got bingo twice already. Go listen again to all the names. Well, in 1965, Florence left Knoll Associates and the planning unit closed in 1971. The planning unit designed over 70 office interiors of major companies such as IBM, GM, Look Magazine, Seagram's, Heinz, Connecticut General Life Insurance, and CBS. Many of the designers who worked at the unit went on to found interior divisions at architectural firms like SOM. The unit was nicknamed Shu Yu after Florence. <laughs> Cute! Okay, guys, we should have really considered doing a client bingo card too. Just saying. There's a lot of companies. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do over next yeah. time. Mm-hmm. But notice how the unit didn't last very long without Florence. Mm-hmm. After leaving Knoll, Florence kept designing, including designing the architecture and interiors of two houses for her and her husband. What is retirement, one might say? To our ladies, <laughs> it's just more work. They could have played the bingo game that we are currently playing, but no, no such thing. No, no, no such thing. (laughs) What is retirement? Yeah. (laughs) You're right. None of that. (laughs) Okay, well, let's talk about some of Florence's awards. She is one of the few people to get top recognition from all the American professional organizations in architecture and design. In 1961, Florence was awarded the AIA Gold Medal for Industrial Design. She was the first woman to receive the award in industrial design. In 1962, she won the Furniture Prize from the American Institute of Interior Designers. In 1977, she got the Total Design Award from the American Society of Interior Designers. In 1979, she got an honorary doctorate of fine arts from Parsons. In 1985, she was inducted into the Interior Design Magazine Hall of Fame And in 2002, she got the National Endowment for the Arts National Medal of Arts for her contributions to architecture and design, which is the highest award given to artists by the federal government. Excuse me. I got to go pick up my jaw from the floor. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is a long list. And with all Mm -hmm. that she had accomplished and the scale of it all, it was only appropriate for her to receive the recognition that she did. And we're talking about her impact across so many sectors, interiors, furniture, architecture, fine arts and marketing. Like, girl, like mm, powerhouse. I know. Exactly. Well, 
Her second husband, Harry Bassett, died in 1991, and she became the president of the Bassett Family Foundation. She was committed to land conservation and campaigned for it until her death in January 2019 at the age of 101. 101? She just died. I mean, that was only three years ago. Oh my God, it just happened. I'm in total shock. We lived in the same era as this greatness. We Maybe we were breathing the same air as her. We don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm she was she... living down in Miami. Jessica could have run across her. Oh, my her. God. You know how many showrooms <laughs> I walked through in my time in Miami that I could have seen her? I could have... Shut up. Now, oh, my God. Time machines. Where are you? I need one right now. <laughs> I'm glad she lived a century. I mean, what a great life. For real. I know. Ugh. Architecture author Fred A. Bernstein wrote in her obituary that Florence may have done more to promote modernism than any other woman or man. And I think in addition to all of the things that Florence did, a huge part of that was, quote, regendering design fields and professions. Her planning unit transformed interior design from interior decoration, which was often associated with women into spatial architecture. Along with that, she created what we think of as standard corporate office design layout and open plan workstations. And she started the now standard practice of interior design offices using paste-ups, showing swatches of materials along with design drawings. Okay, so basically Florence was a total badass innovator, responsible for a lot of aspects of our profession and spaces that we find so standard today. How wonderful to learn about her today and to give credit where credit is due. I hope more people keep sharing her story so they recognize this lady and all her contributions to their lives. Agreed. Along with our other ladies, Florence proves to us that good design and good business skills knows no gender. A household name can belong to a woman. That's right. Okay. well, before we continue, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Are you tired of using outdated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your projects stand today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome money gant, you can immediately see where you are under or over budget. Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their tool resource allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. Learn what else Monograph can do to help you operate your firm and visit monograph.com. And now back to the show. All right. Before we leave you, we have to tell you who our karyotid is for this week's episode. Jessica, can you remind us what a karyotid is? Sure. So for some background, a karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek style building. Each episode will choose a karyotid, a woman who is working today furthering the profession through their work and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. All right. Without further ado, this week's karyotid is... <laughs> Zoe Chan. <laughs> so Zoe is one half of the firm Chan and Ears, started with her husband Merlin Ears. Zoe was born in London and she studied architecture. She really wanted to build an actual project during school, 
So she bought a property in London and designed and built the whole thing while she was in school. She sold it once she was done and used the money to buy empty sites for future projects once she was done with school. Are you kidding me? This sounds so brave. I'm hesitant to buy land and design a house today, like a decade out of school. I can't imagine doing this (laughs) without even graduating. That is so smart, too. Like, what an entrepreneur. It's awesome. So great. Yeah, I know. I was I was like, what? (laughs) So now with her husband, Merlin, they continue to do work in this way. Their firm has no true client because they buy a property and design and build the entire project and interiors down to the furniture and the cutlery within the house. They live in the space while they do this to really understand the project and its potential. And then they sell the house with everything in it, furniture, everything, and move to the next project. That's so interesting. Seems kind of risky in my opinion, but in a way, it sounds like a really good business strategy. Yeah, I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They said that at first they would clash a lot with their working style, but they've now each found their place in the partnership. Merlin is a people person and likes to be out and about, and he's the one who likes to work with his hands. Zoe is more introverted and likes to sketch and dream of the project. She dreams and finesses the design, and he's the one who executes and helps refine it. It reminded me of Florence and Han's relationship a little bit and Florence's concept of total design with her interiors. Yeah, that story is so Florence and Han's. Yeah, it's also interesting because we never hear about the part of these couples and partnerships where they struggle in their working relationships. So it's refreshing to have them speak real about how they work. And it also goes back to some of the stories that we've heard of just some of the best partnerships that we've seen are those where one can fill in where the other might lack. So it's good. It's great. Yeah, I totally agree. you got to be able to complement each other in the best way, in the most necessary ways. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Okay, it's time for a visit to the Agora. (laughs) Ah! In Greek society, the Agora was the central meeting place of the city where news was shared. So now we're going to share some news from our listeners. Today, we want to say a big congratulations to Alicia Belton, who has been elevated to the College of Fellows for the AIA. I met Alicia in 2019 and was quickly inspired by all the work she does and how passionate she is about moving the profession of architecture forward. Keep shining your light, Alicia. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of someone else we know got elevated to fellowship as well. Our first season carried Lori Brown. Yay, Lori! Yay! (laughs) Yes, our very first carried and also my second year professor. That's so cool. So proud to know all these elevated ladies. Yeah. All right. Before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music to John W., our technical producer, and most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Florence and Zoe along with our banter and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. And thank you again to Monograph for their support of this episode. Learn more about Monograph at monograph.com. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is all about building a better world. If this sounds good to you, Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-Media.com.
Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow fellows. Tell your showroom people and your paste up vendors. You know, tell them to give us five stars on iTunes and tell them to write us a review because this will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com, leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on Twitter at shebuildspod. Bye. Bye. Ta-ta for now. Oh, that's so cute. That's the sound that trolls make. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.